Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to John chapter 15. And today, we come to what I think is one of the most uh, practical and helpful passages in helping us understand the nature of our relationship with Jesus. Now, we've been at the study uh, in the Gospel of John for a long time already. I think this is week number 43, something like that. Uh, And one of the features that you find in the Gospel of John is a series. There are seven of them. Uh, I am statements where Jesus says, I am. So if you go back to chapter six, you find the first of these where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, that we are to feast uh, on him. That's what sustains us in life. In John chapter eight, there is a feast that is taking place. This festival is taking place. And in the middle of all that, Jesus stands up and declares, I am the light of the world. Uh, He is later questioned by the religious leaders. And in response to that, he says, before Abraham was, was born, I am. He simply declares himself to be the great I am. In John chapter 10, there are two I am statements from the lips of Jesus. Uh, He says there that I am the door. Uh, He's the pathway. He's the door that we must go through uh, to be in relationship with God. And then he also says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 11, Jesus declares his authority over life and death. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we come to John chapter 15 and we meet the seventh and final I am statement that Jesus makes. And what Jesus says here is, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That is the I am statement that he makes. It's a pretty straightforward statement. I think it's something we can all picture in our mind's eye, a branch that is not connected to a vine is not going to grow or produce grapes or really do anything. Uh, And just, I don't use a lot of props in my sermons, but I thought I would show you. Uh, I bought these flowers for Ilona uh, about a week ago. And uh, when I brought them home, she actually gave me this kind of suspicious look. And she said, like, you you bought these for me, really? I said, well, I mean, I bought them for you and and for my sermon. But (laughs) yes, I I, I bought them for you. Um, And you know, actually... Maybe they don't look very, very nice to you, right? They look a little bit ratty because it's been some time that has passed. The truth is, this is what has happened every time that I have bought flowers and brought them home to my wife. They always end up looking like this. And the reason they end up looking like this is because they are dead. They're not connected to their life source. Now, Ilona tries. I mean, she gets those flowers, she puts them in water, she sprinkles that magic powder in them that tries to keep them alive as long as possible. But every single time, they end up looking like this. It's part of the reason I've never understood the phenomenon of buying flowers. I mean, it's sort of the only time you can bring something dead home to your wife and she's happy, right? So pro tip, don't try that with a kitten or or anything like that. Okay. Look, I know it's kind of silly, 
But the reason the flowers look like that is because they're disconnected from their life source. And as we consider this passage this morning, I want to say that that is too often true for many people in the church. We look like flowers that are completely disconnected from our life source. We look like branches that have no connection to the vine, and therefore there is no fruit. So my question this morning is simply this. How do we prevent becoming like these flowers? How do we make sure that we aren't fruitless branches? So let's read the passage before us. We're in John chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. It says this, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in the vine. Or unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words in you, or my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, there's a lot in here. I mean, even a cursory reading of this passage tells us that it is about the necessity of abiding And bearing fruit. Uh, The word abide is used 10 times in these 11 verses. The word fruit is used seven times. And that is helpful in a way, but what does it actually mean to abide and how do we bear fruit? It's going to be a pretty simple message today. Uh, This passage, I think, outlines some basic truths that we need to incorporate into our lives if we're going to be branches that bear fruit and not branches that wither and die. So what I'm going to do is simply highlight for you four things that we need to do in order to grow. Now, some of you might even have a reaction to that. I mean, just on the outset of it, we're talking about the spiritual life. Saying there are four things that you need to do makes it sound like it's more formulaic and less organic of a process. But I would just say, if you've ever talked to someone who does organic farming, who does that kind of farming that you know makes those cucumbers that you pay $12 for at, at Whole Foods, that kind of thing, you'll actually find there's a lot more work in that kind of organic farming. And I would just say in the same way, if we think we're going to just kind of drift into being a fruitful disciple of Jesus, we are mistaken. So we took a six-week break from the Gospel of John for our Christmas series. We came back to it last week, but I think it's important just to remember the context in which these words 
appear, and these verses appear. John 15 is part of what is known as the farewell discourse. This is Jesus' final set of instructions to his disciples before he will be arrested and crucified. All of John chapter 13 to the end of John chapter 17 is part of this farewell discourse, these final instructions from Jesus. And I think even just knowing that should make us want to kind of lean in and listen closely to what Jesus has to say what he says to his disciples, and by extension, what he says to us. Jesus was telling them how to live lives that please God during a time of his absence. And these are things that we ought to take to heart as well. So the first thing we need to do in order to grow is we need to submit ourselves to God's discipline. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. God wants his vineyards to produce grapes. He wants his people to be fruitful. He's not content with dead branches. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that it's filled with references of God's frustration with the fact that his people were not fruitful. And he often compares them to a a vine. Isaiah chapter 5 is one of those passages that says this. It says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. And his vineyard is Israel. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then later in the same chapter, Isaiah says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The perpetual problem in the nation of Israel was that instead of bearing fruit, God's people produced sour grapes. Now in this passage in John 15, Jesus says that his followers not should bear good fruit, but in fact will bear good fruit. In fact, he says that if you don't bear fruit, you're not really one of his disciples. Verse 8, he says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so... Prove to be my disciples. Bearing fruit is one of the assurances we have that we are one of Jesus' followers. If there is no fruit, there is no room for confidence that we are, in fact, connected to the vine. Now, I know someone might say, well, wait a minute. I mean, I prayed that prayer when I was 10. Like, how much fruit do I have to bear? What do you mean I have to bear fruit? I think there's actually two problems with that line of reasoning. The first is that to argue this way is to adopt the fallacy of the beard. Uh, fallacy of the beard is that it's a, it's a logical fallacy. And basically, the fallacy of the beard asks the question, when does a beard become a beard? Well, what's the correct answer to that? Now, if you have a baby face, it might take two weeks before there's really any resemblance of anything that might resemble a beard. Others of you, I mean, by the time I have five o'clock shadow, you've got like a full-grown beard. 
Now, when did it actually move from being just sort of five o'clock shadow or stubble to actually being a beard? Well, I don't know exactly. I just know at some point it became a beard. And the same is true of Jesus' disciples. There will be fruit that is born at some point in time. And I think actually the second problem with that is to to ask that question, well, what what do you mean I have to bear fruit or how much fruit do I have to bear actually misses the point. It's not like Jesus wants us to bear a single grape or a single piece of fruit. He wants us to be fruitful disciples that bear much fruit. Again, listen to verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That's the goal of our lives, that we become fruitful disciples of Jesus. And as a way to help us do that, Jesus says that the Father prunes us. Pruning is God's discipline in our lives. And pruning can be a painful process. I mean, it's where we go under God's knife and he literally strips away those things that hinder our growth, that stop us from being fruitful. And this can be painful, but what we need to remember is that this is actually for our good. It's not harmful. To the untrained eye, pruning looks quite cruel. So at home, we used to have this clematis plant or flower or vine or whatever it is that was just outside our front door. And every spring, this thing would just grow immensely. It would actually almost take over the front porch. And I remember when we first moved into the house that first year that I looked out the window one day and I saw our neighbor hacking away at this thing. And I was like, Bob, Bob, what are you doing to our beautiful plant? And he said, oh, look, you, 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 have to, you have to cut these things away every fall so that they'll bloom again next spring. And when he got done with it, I mean, it looked pathetic. I remember thinking, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but I think he just killed this thing. <laughs> but in fact, that next spring, it grew even fuller. This is what pruning does in our lives as well. God prunes us. He disciplines us so that we might bear fruit. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And what he's confessing is that he had turned away from God, he'd started following his own way, but that God disciplined, and that discipline brought him back to the right path. And then just a couple of verses later in that psalm, he adds this, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Right? He saw that discipline as a blessing. This is what allowed him to learn the statutes, learn the ways of God. That's how we're supposed to respond to discipline in our lives. It's painful, but we should submit ourselves to it. One of the characters in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series is a boy named Eustace Scrub. And when we first meet him, he's selfish, he is immature, he thinks only of himself. And in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, he not only finds himself in a dragon's cave with all of the treasures, but he discovers that because of his quest for the, he's actually been turned into a dragon himself. And he attempts to remove the scales and the skin, but he cannot get rid of it. 
And finally, Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure comes. And then Eustace describes what happens next. He says, this is what the lion said, but I don't know if he spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. When he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the scales peel off. Now, some of you have experienced that very thing with God's discipline. I mean, you've had stuff and relationships, even some seemingly good things taken away or stripped away in your life. And it may have felt like your world was turned completely upside down. It's painful to go through seasons like that, where God prunes us. It's painful to experience God's discipline at times. But his discipline, his pruning, is never without a purpose. He doesn't just let us go astray. We need God's discipline. See, often we can't even see what needs to be pruned. We can't see what needs to be stripped away or cut away. And even if we could, I doubt that we would go far enough. Right? We would take up half measures. Maybe we'd cut back a little bit on this or a little bit like that. But God's discipline is like pruning. He strips away all of the things that need to go. The book of Hebrews gives us this great piece of wisdom about God's discipline. There it says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's the purpose. We might share in his holiness, that we might bear much fruit. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's really two different ways we can respond to God's discipline in our lives. We can sort of shake our fist. We can run away from God. Or we can submit to it and learn from it. God, what do you want to teach me through this? To the untrained eye, pruning looks harsh, but it is for our good. Again, notice what it says right at the end of our passage in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Second thing we need to do to grow is to immerse ourselves in God's word. In verse 3, Jesus says this. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And the word that he's speaking about seems to be the content of what he's taught them during their three years together. And then in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So the teaching of Jesus, the words of Jesus, obviously made an impression on his disciples. 
John himself later would say this in the letter of 1 John. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. The words of Jesus are supposed to abide in us. We're supposed to let them actually take up residence in us. That's the language. Now, I, I, I know this isn't rocket science or rocket surgery. I, I know this isn't something you haven't heard before, but sometimes we need to go back to the absolute basics of our faith. I, I once took a course in seminary. It was called Ministry and Spirituality. And the goal of the course was to you know, help those preparing to go into ministry to develop their own uh, internal spiritual life. It's a pretty worthwhile goal for a seminary course. And the course was actually taught by a sort of guru of of Christian spirituality. If I said his name, many of you would recognize it. It was the kind of course where lists were frowned upon as being too simplistic an approach to growing in the Christian life or growing in your spirit. But I remember this one class in particular. It was a three-hour lecture on a particular approach to Bible reading, and it was really emphasizing the importance of careful and prayerful study of God's Word. And I'm sure there were many profound things that were said in that class. But at the end of the three hours, I think the most profound thing was the my friend who I was sitting with turned to me and said, you know, actually, when you boil all this down, it sounds an awful lot like read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Look, I know that's from a children's song, but that's actually good counsel for every one of us. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. We need to immerse ourselves in God's words. And I stated it that way for a reason. I'm not just saying you should read the Bible and make it a habit, though that's a good thing to do. But Jesus says we are to abide in him and let his words abide in us. So what what exactly does that mean? Well, whatever it means, it certainly means more than just sort of a surface level contact with the Bible. Psalm 1 starts out by saying this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or, or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See, the the, the word actually takes up residence in our hearts and in our minds. It's something we think about. And a lot of people hear that word meditation, and they think, well, I'm, I'm a little bit leery of that, because when they think of meditation, they think of emptying their mind. That's not the biblical meaning of meditation. The biblical idea of meditation is that we fill our mind. And the thing that we fill our minds with, the thing that we meditate on, is the Word of God. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. God's Word is not a dead thing. It's a living thing that is supposed to dwell in us. I've said to you before that I think there's a difference between getting into God's word and getting God's word into you, allowing it to permeate your your heart and your mind. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We need to memorize it. 
And please don't cop out by saying, well, actually, I have a bad memory. You don't have a bad memory. You have an untrained memory or an undisciplined memory. You can actually remember lots of useless information. We need to immerse ourselves in God's word. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who've said something like, well, you know, I'm just not growing. There's no vitality in my spiritual life. When you ask them about what their habits are like, when it comes to immersing themselves in God's word, the answer is almost invariably the same. Uh, I I find that hard to do, or I, I don't really have time to do that. Right, so you have time to binge watch a bunch of episodes of your favorite shows on Netflix or Prime or Disney or all three. You've got time to spend hours researching vacation destinations. You have time to doom scroll on Twitter. You have time to watch inane videos on TikTok. But you have no time to spend in God's Word. You want to know why your spiritual life is so anemic? And why you never hear from God? But you become like the flowers. You've completely cut yourself off from the source of spiritual life. So Ilona has been reading the book of Ezekiel lately. And I can't tell you how many times in the last couple of weeks she said, did, said something like, did, did, did you know or do you remember what it says in Ezekiel 18 about repentance and grace? Or do you know, do you remember the warning of you know, Ezekiel 24 about shepherds and their duty and what happens if they don't fulfill it. Like, I, I, I do know that one. Frightened by it. But I would just say God speaks through his word. When you immerse yourself in it, you hear from God on a regular basis. I don't know anyone who has a vibrant relationship with God that doesn't have a regular practice of reading their Bible. So if you want to grow, submit yourself to God's discipline. Immerse yourself in his word. It's the third thing we need to do in order to grow, and that is we need to keep ourselves in God's love. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, isn't God the one who keeps us in his love? Isn't the Christian life more about him hanging on to us than us hanging on to him? And the answer to that is yes and no. It's important for us to understand we're not saved by our own efforts. and We're not preserved by our own efforts. But that's not to say we don't play a role in our spiritual growth. That's, that's what abiding is. There's an active and a passive side to growing spiritually. Listen to these words from the book of Jude. Here's what Jude says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Do you see the two sides of this there, right? Build yourselves up, pray, keep yourselves in the love of God, wait for the mercy of the Lord. And we need need to understand both of those things. We need to understand the role that we play in growing spiritually. Now, again, I said this last week, but on the whole today, I think as a bit of a corrective to past generations that maybe lean towards legalism, we tend to de-emphasize our role. We don't want to be seen as preaching law. 
But we're making a great mistake if we think that spiritual growth comes without effort. The Apostle Peter said it this way. He said, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter says, make every effort to do these things. And sometimes I wonder, are we making any effort? Jesus says it pretty clearly here in verses 4 and 5. He says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing is what we can do apart from abiding in the vine or remaining in the vine. What does that actually look like? Best picture I think I can give you of this is, is... Water skiing or wakeboarding. Now, I know the trend is wake surfing. You don't need a rope anymore. But if I just kind of go old school for a minute, when you are wakeboarding or water skiing, you can do some pretty amazing things behind the boat. You can. I can't. You can do jumps and flips. You can even go barefoot. As long as you're holding on to the rope. The moment you let go of the rope is the moment you lose connection with the boat. You'll be able to continue moving forward for a few seconds. But it won't be long before you sink. That's what it looks like when we're not abiding in the vine. There's no connection. And Jesus says, apart from him, we can do nothing. Not, you know, you can do some things. You can do nothing. And I think many of us don't believe that. And so we live disconnected to the vine. It might even look like we're doing okay for a while. But in reality, we know we're sinking. So if you've let yourself get separated from the vine, you need to start abiding again. Now, I mentioned this last week. But in the book of Revelation, Jesus writes these seven letters to seven different churches. And I mentioned the church of Ephesus last week. I want you to hear again what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. He said, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And then he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And what he says to this church who had lost its first love is, go back to the beginning. Do the things you did at first. Now, I've actually done a fair bit of marriage counseling over the years. I've met with lots of couples who said something like, you know what, we, we just kind of fell out of love. I mean, there's no spark. There's no passion. There's no intimacy. There's actually not much of a relationship even. 
And you want to know where I usually begin those conversations? Is why don't you tell me about the early days of your relationship? I mean, what were the things that attracted you to this person? What was it that made you think, I can't live without them? What were some of the things you just enjoyed doing together? How did you enjoy spending time together? Is it possible that in the midst of paying off a mortgage and raising kids, you've neglected the things you did at the start that actually made your relationship special? I know it sounds really simplistic, but this is what some of you need to do in your relationship with Jesus. You need to go back to the beginning. You need to go back to the very simple things and do the things you did at first. This leads to a fourth thing we need to do. And this is what it looks like on a practical level to abide, is that we need to give ourselves to God's commandments. Look at verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, we talked a good deal about obedience last week. I mean, we pretty much stuck to verse 15 of chapter 14, right? That was the, the, pretty much the entirety of the message. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. So we spent the bulk of our time talking about the necessity of obedience. A disciple is someone who obeys Jesus' teaching. It's what it means to love God. The Bible's definition for love for God is found in 1 John 5, where it says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments And his commandments are not burdensome. So it's important to emphasize the necessity of obedience. But I think it's also important to stress the blessing or the blessings of obedience. There is a blessing that comes from obeying God's word. When you obey God's instructions about money, there's a blessing that comes with that. When you obey what God's word says about marriage, your marriage is blessed. When you take any of the teachings of the Bible, and you obey them, whether it's about parenting or work or honesty or anything else that the Bible addresses, there is a practical blessing that comes from being obedient to it. But actually, I mean more than that. The greatest blessing that comes to us when we obey God's teaching is the very closeness of God himself. Listen to what Jesus said in chapter 14. I didn't read, I didn't go into detail on these verses last week, but here's what Jesus said. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you want a close relationship with God? Well, the pathway to that is obedience to his commands. A great blessing from that. And again, Jesus ends here by saying, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So let's pray to that end. Lord, we come today as, uh, as people who are constantly in need of your grace, constantly in need of your spirit breathing life into us. And Lord, we pray today just around those things that that we ought to be doing, that we need to do in order to experience closeness with you and fellowship with you. God, I pray that you would help us to submit to your discipline in our lives, to your pruning. Pray you'd help us to immerse ourselves in your word, and as we do that, to meet us there and to help us 
to grow. I pray you'd help us to know our part, that we would take active steps to grow closer to you, and that we would follow what you tell us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.